As we come back together this morning, we are continuing to uh, look at uh, passages in the Advent readings, uh, trying to keep a, uh, a theme through our Advent season in relationship to the same readings that our brothers and sisters across the world are uh, reading and reflecting on this morning. It is a delight uh, this time of year to be reminded that uh, God's kingdom stretches uh, around the globe throughout time and space. And uh, these readings, which have been arranged uh, for many, many years, uh, have been reflected upon by generation after generation uh, as they fix their minds and their hearts on the advent of Christ, first His birth and also His second coming. This morning we're in Philippians chapter uh, 4, uh, which is the uh, epistle reading for this day. And it is one of those great passages where Paul just exudes and celebrates the goodness of God. But he is doing so as an encouragement, uh, nay, a direction, an imperative on how we engage uh, in this life. Paul sums up uh, his letter to the Philippians this way, starting in verse 4 of chapter 4. Therefore rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we continue to reflect on your word, Lord, everything here is done because you have spoken to us. You have given us your word and you have revealed yourself. We ask, Lord, that as we reflect on your word this morning, that your people might be encouraged and built up and the great joy that it is to be yours. And we pray that anything that is not true would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So at this time of year, when we get together, I don't know if, if you have this in, in your family, but oftentimes there's one individual who has a strong sense and expectation that this is going to be the greatest Christmas meal ever. And, uh, and in their hopes and expectations of building up uh, this event, a certain increase in pressure that everybody will enjoy themselves, that you will have fun. Now, as a young person, I remember uh, someone in my life, maybe call her my mother, who had certain expectations about our enjoying one another. Uh, we, we talk about her ability to have a picture in her mind. We're not sure how much of it was Carrier and Ives, how much of it was something that she had experienced. But she had these notions. And it wasn't just at Christmas time. Uh, it was also uh, any kind of family gathering. And of course, when I hit 12, 13, those being an age in which one is incredibly humble and willing to submit to one's parents and just anything I could do to delight my mother was, of course, forefront in my mind. Uh, no, I was a horrible person. And so what I had was a tendency then to, as much as the pressure was to enjoy people, 
in those moments to set my mind up and my heart against any sense of enjoyment at all. Doesn't matter how good the food was, I was going to look like the food was terrible. Doesn't matter how much fun I started to have with my cousins, I would, if I made eye contact with mother, make sure that it really looked like the very life that I had was being sucked out of me by her unrealistic expectations of my engagement with my family members. Now, being rather unique in that, I'm sure no one else can identify, but there is a certain reality that we have this human tendency when somebody tells you, you will have fun, we are going to go and you will have fun, that our heart has a tendency to say, don't you dare tell me to have fun. How dare you? Interestingly enough, as funny and humorous as that may seem, and to a large degree, perhaps it appears that I've outgrown that. But I don't know that I have. In fact, there's something very dangerous, and I encourage all of the young people still left in the room to think about this, is that the more we practice that, pressure of our own will to exert it against even wise counsel, like you should engage and have fun with your family because we have an opportunity to celebrate Christmas or a family reunion or any numerous reason that we might get together, that you should really look forward to this. When we harden our hearts in an attempt to exert our own will and force on the moment, we're actually training ourselves on how we'll react the rest of our lives when we find ourselves being told how to feel. Now, in many ways, that may be seen as a wise thing. The problem is, when I get to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and then I go to seminary, and I get told that this is the imperative tense, that this rejoice is not a suggestion. This rejoice is not a fond emotion being expressed, wondering and hoping, golly gee willikers, if you might just join into this rejoicing. Paul says, this is what we do. This is who you are. And I still find it difficult then because I trained myself in one direction to not be told how to feel that I wrestle with a passage like this. How dare God tell me to rejoice when I go through the litany of things that I find difficult in my life. And so in this Advent season, just a reflection here briefly on what does it mean to be told and to practice in my heart actually a submission to God's command that I be one in him who rejoices in season and out of season. We know that Paul was not always in pleasant places as he expressed this expectation of being people of rejoicing. And if we read the full book of Philippians, we know that they too were struggling mightily with things that would have sucked the fun out of anybody's day. And yet Paul doesn't say, because you are in great difficulties, because there is division among you, because there is persecution coming upon you, I understand you don't have to rejoice. He actually does the opposite. 
So let's wrestle with this a little bit this morning. First, uh, the imperative to live a life of joy. And then secondly, uh, the joy of turning life over to God. But first of all, the imperative. What we see here in, in this short section of verses is Paul's indicative. Uh, following the indicative is his imperative. Sorry. So he has expressed to us who we are in Christ. And he now tells us what the implications are. We are to be people of rejoicing. We read these amazing passages in the Old Testament where God's people are rejoicing in his concrete actions and work. They're rejoicing in the fact that he is the king. Every week we model our worship service on the Isaiah 6 passage where they enter the presence of God. Isaiah enters the presence of God. His first response is to see and recognize the beauty of God and the seraphim and are already singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are rejoicing in the presence of their creator. The question that naturally asks is, how do I know? How do I know if I am rejoicing? What I know is it can't be a happy feeling all the time. Whatever this biblical understanding of being people of joy, people who express rejoicing as a part of the very fiber and ethic and character and nature of our lives, that this joy has to be something different than simply happiness. It can't be a good, warm, fuzzy feeling all the time because even Paul doesn't have that. Jesus doesn't seem to have a warm, fuzzy feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, if there be any other way. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't expressing the joy of who his father was at that moment. We have to have a deeper understanding of biblical joy lest we think that it is that sense of happiness, that sense of carefree. So what does Paul go on to say? Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Uh, the ESV translates uh, that slightly differently. It's not in front. Why, why did, where are my notes? Who took my notes? Who's got an ESV in front of him? Thank you. I knew it was something like that. Something that I'm not good at. So there's gentleness, there's reasonableness. That Greek word can be translated either way. And there's also, in context, a sense that this is not just inward focused, but that it is by everyone, right? That there is a sense in which, not just within the body of Christ, not within our families simply, but the way we interact with the world around us, one of the ways that we know we are embracing the joy and the confidence of our risen Savior, the joy and confidence of living in relationship with the creator of the universe who now sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that the great passage that Paul has already written in Philippians 2 about the nature of Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in the appearance of a man. Humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. We know that as we begin to internalize that reality, that that vision is the immediate 
context in which we live, it interestingly enough creates gentleness and reasonableness. What does reasonableness mean in this context? We are not blown to and fro by our emotions. That the joy runs deeper, we are less likely to react emotionally in a fashion which is unreasonable, even though we may be afraid. And it feels reasonable if we didn't know that our God reigns. It's completely reasonable in certain ways to react in fear to certain kinds of threats if you think that God is not in charge. You're not going to sit in a prison after having received 40 lashes and sing lovely songs about God and reflect on His Word if there isn't the joy of having seen the vision of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. In one way or another, if the immediacy of Christ is not in you at that moment, as the disciples often did, sitting in prisons after having been beaten, left for dead, their responses, my reaction, would probably be more anger-based, more fear-based, more revenge-based. And yet that isn't. The reasonable response is one in which service continues, care continues, the preaching of the gospel continues. The love of one's enemy now becomes the reasonable response, the gentleness towards those who express fear and hate towards us, towards God's people. The reasoned response now, in light of who God is, is gentleness. The reasonable response is forgiveness. And it is to extend both inside the church and outside. This is an all-encompassing phrase. The Lord is near. He goes on to say that the Lord is near. Now that is not necessarily that Christ's second return is coming, and so we should be watching our P's and Q's lest he come at a moment when we are acting in a non-gentle fashion. Because, of course, we know that if God doesn't see us actually do it at that moment, it didn't happen. Just kind of handy. No, of course not. We know that. I function that way all the time, as if somehow behind a closed door, God doesn't know that I'm not being gentle. But we... We can think that way, right? If he's coming back tomorrow, then I'm going to try really, really hard to be good, at least for the next 24 to 48 hours until he returns. And if he doesn't return, I'll get frustrated because that was an awful lot of effort being nice to people I'm not terribly fond of. And it just it was exhausting. So now, so since he's not coming back, then I don't have to try that hard for a while. Again, I'm only expressing the rather convoluted rationale of your minister, not in in any way suggesting that any of you would think similarly. But what I know is that what Paul's saying here is not so much he's coming back in the Santa Claus sense. So there's a, a list for those who've been naughty and nice and you better watch out because you may get either coal in your stocking, which apparently now is a good thing, um, or you may get sweets in your stocking. And that is the way I often operate with God and this sense of him being close. What Paul is saying is that actually he's near to us. He walks with you. He's never far away. 
The Lord is near. Therefore, as you and I desire to respond in gentleness and in reasonableness to the difficulties of this life, as we express and live out the joy of our Creator and the joy of our King, we actually know that by the Holy Spirit, not only is He seated at the right hand of the Father, but by the Spirit, He is with me. In the words of that wonderful old song, He walks with me, He talks with me along life's way. There are ways in which that tune, perhaps, I, I love the tune, But that song expresses a real deep reality. It's not sentimentality. If applied, looking at what Paul says for him to walk with me and to speak with me through his word and by the Spirit along life's way, it's reflecting what Paul's saying right here. Not mere sentimentality, but the joy of the Lord expressed through my ability to be gentle, is a recognition of the fact that I walk with my Savior every moment of every day. That the Lord is near. So do not be anxious about anything. Well, now this is another way I know that I am expressing and existing in the spirit of joy. If I know that my God reigns, and this not just in a cognitive way, but in ever greater degrees in my heart, then there is a gentleness about me. I recognize the immediacy and intimacy of my God who is with me. The Lord is near me and therefore it makes perfect sense that I will not be anxious. And yet nothing robs my sense of peace more than anxiety. The anxiety of all of the things that I really can't control but I think I might. Or the fact that I'm always comparing myself to the other about their life must be more peaceful and less anxious because they have whatever. Whatever I think will make me less anxious at that given moment, right? Whatever my heart believes will give it peace. And again, dear friends, that can be everything from money, but sometimes it can be our physical health. I will be less anxious if I'm healed What if you're not this side of glory? Does that mean there is no joy for you? You see, the challenge is when we get to this point of letting go of our anxieties, we're also letting go of control. The challenge is that I regularly have a God that I want to be supernatural. We just watched Aladdin this week. Uh, Hilarious movie, right? But too often, that's how I view God. He is, maybe I only have a limited number of wishes and I really need to know what God's will is so that I can make my wish really count to maximize my three wishes. But I want a God who serves my needs and those things that I believe to be critical to my life of flourishing and happiness. What I don't necessarily trust is that the divine being all-knowing in a real sense of that word, having created knowledge itself and then created me, knows what I actually need for flourishing. And interestingly enough, in the life of believers, sometimes that isn't health. Sometimes that isn't wealth. Sometimes that is anything but security in a temporal sense. 
right? We talked about last week, this, uh, two weeks ago, the awkwardness of uh, Chinese pastors debating whether or not you had to have gone to jail for your faith to be ordained as a minister because they wanted to know that you could endure and not quickly roll on the brothers and sisters if the government came and started to lean on you. So imagine sitting in jail going, well, thank goodness, now I can get ordained. Again, my trials of ordination were difficult enough. That's amazing. And yet for us, because of so many factors, and you can see that quote on the front of your worship folder, we have so trained ourselves, we have so bought into the worldly notion, our own desires that have a root in good things. We read a passage like Isaiah 35 and we say, we want that peace. We want a world in which I can walk down the street and not be fear, not fear being mauled by whatever it is, a human lion or an actual lion. I don't want to be mauled. I want to live in peace. I want to have the security that gives me that distance from those things which may overwhelm me. It's not coming to a place where we deny that those are good things or blessings. It is coming to a place that our joy is based that we have a king who reigns, who walks with us and knows better than we do. And therefore, as he leads us in paths, sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear evil. That our anxiety need not be stirred, stirred up because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And that we can rejoice even in our suffering, as Paul says in Romans 5. Rejoice in suffering means I have to have somebody else in charge and I have to have something more secure than anything this planet can give me because everything here shifts, everything here changes, Everything here is fleeting, and that's why Ecclesiastes says all of life is vapor and no control can be gained from it, and so I am anxious all the time. But there's an answer. It's the joy of turning our lives over to God. Look in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This isn't about stoicism. This isn't about fatalism. This isn't the key to peace is to let go. No, the key to peace is to lay it at the feet of the one who's really in charge. And to give thanks that he's in charge and not you and not me. Because if I'm in charge, because I'm not gentle, because I am profoundly rash, heaven knows how creation would end up as my emotions took us back and forth, took my family, took my life, took my world around me based on my needs at that moment. To give thanks that one who knows the beginning from the end, the Alpha and the Omega, who gave himself, who is the fulfillment of that amazing prayer in Philippians 2, to know that he is in charge. To know that when I lay my prayers and petitions and thanksgiving before him, the wisest being in the universe 
who desires to love me and show himself faithful to me will hear my prayers and respond wisely as he understands my eternity and my need to trust him. It's that kind of letting go. Even as I wrestle with praying for the health of loved ones or work or the fears that would overcome me, even if I know they're irrational. But because he's near me, I can share them with him and turn them over to him. And with thanksgiving, knowing that he has given himself in Christ, that he's been faithful to us and to me beyond imagining. When we do count our blessings and recognize his faithfulness and say, Lord, not only is it sufficient, but it is lavish. You have been gracious to me. With prayer and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As we turn our lives over to God in greater degrees, as we recognize what He's already done in giving us a new heart and walking with us, a peace of God which passes, transcends all understanding, all knowledge. Again, that is what we do every Sunday when we pass the peace to one another. We try and express by the work of the Holy Spirit a peace that, that surpasses anything that I can say to you. The peace of the Lord be with you. Not the peace of this day. Not the peace of the good news about our 401k's appreciation. Not the, good, not the peace of a war ending. As lovely and wonderful as all of those things are, no, it's the peace of the Lord be with you. It's why I encourage, again, we love hospitality time. But as you interact during that time of the passing of the peace, that is a benediction and a word of blessing that you give to your brothers and sisters. You don't know how important it may be for them to hear on a given Sunday, the peace of the Lord be with you. It doesn't mean that it's not nice to share your names and meet new people. But it's actually something we're doing as a part of the liturgy. You're blessing people. And you're receiving that same blessing of peace. It's a sacred act. It's an important act in the priesthood of all believers to speak the peace of the Lord to one another. Because we don't know what anxiety that hand we're shaking may be wrestling with as they need to know the peace of God. And it does transcend all understanding. You can't look at the life of Paul and not begin to wrestle with what it is to have a peace that transcends human suffering. It's hard to imagine even Christ himself, because he was fully human, having a peace that transcended understanding. It is amazing when you think about it. Right? I make this point often on Easter is that uh, Jesus goes into the garden weak. He's heavy. He's burdened. He comes out strong. He goes before the God, his, his Father, if there be any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. He, he sweats tears of blood. He's weak, as a human would be. 
He goes to his father. He doesn't get an answer that he really would want. It's the answer he knew he'd get. It's why he came. But what he gets is, finish the job. Not my will, but your will be done. And he gets out of the garden. And there's power. A peace that allows him to go through his trial the right way without breaking. Showing the power of who he is. He speaks his name and the crowd uh, gathered in the garden to arrest him fall down. His words, even as he steps out, I'm working back chronologically. The disciples who decided to sleep and get human strength back. He wakes them up and he says what? With all the firmness of his voice, voice, stand up. My hour has come. Here comes my accuser. Voice of strength, of peace that passes all understanding. That same resource, the Holy Spirit, is accessible to you and me. That was Christ's humanity built up by the Spirit, exercising the will of the Father, which He calls us to do and does so with joy. And as He does it, He says amazing and gracious things. He's reasonable at His own crucifixion. He's gentle because of the joy that was set before Him. You are that joy but he also gives you his joy. And may God in ever greater degrees allow this Sunday to reflect in us the joy of what it is to have our king, that we might be gentle and reasonable and kind to one another in the world he came to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We do delight in your joy. Lord, we don't want joy to feel like a burden, but we do need to know you better that it might well up in us, that it might become the very air we breathe, that we might share it with others. Lord, through this worship, through this season, allow us to know in ever greater degrees the joy of who you are. In Christ's name, amen.